Welcome to Conspiracy of Light. My name is Woody Harris, and I am joined by my political attache, Josue Cardona. Hello, Woody. Glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we're going to talk about Midnight on the Firing Line, which is the first episode of Babylon 5. It's not, not quite the first that we've talked about. Of course, we talked about The Gathering last time. But uh, it is kind of a reframing of the story after the pilot was put out. The pilot was put out about a little bit under a year before the actual series was put out. I think uh, I think TBS or TNT, whoever it was that, that was showing it, wanted to see whether or not it was going to have any bite when it hit the air. Um, but I guess it got enough bite to create series uh, season one, basically. Um, so here we are in the beginning of the story, basically. They're, they've gone back and kind of redone some of the story. But is that is that... Wait a minute. Are you saying that the things that happened in the gathering were retconned or changed? No, 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 no right? No. Not really. No, there, there's a continuation. Um, you know, I was reading about this. The Straczynski put in what he called trapdoors for anybody who might need to be taken off of the set or taken away from the show. And so, what we're seeing is a series of trapdoors that were created for the very purposes of, well, okay, if if the producers don't like this, then we'll do this kind of thing. So, some of the Characters gotcha. that we previously saw might have some of their their characterizations put on the new characters, but they're not necessarily outside of the universe. It's not like we're redoing those people. Those people stand on their own with maybe some elements from previous characters. Yeah. Okay. So the the basic story of, of Midnight on the Firing Line, you know, the most the biggest thing that you see there is the situation where. Um, uh, we see Ragesh 3, which is a Centauri outpost, an agricultural outpost, um, being fired upon. And um, we're, we're kind of entered into a, a situation of political intrigue between the Minbari, not, not the Minbari, the, the Centauri and the Narn. And, and that's where the show starts out for the most part. Um, but I want to. There's something I want to talk about before I get too deep into story, and that is to talk about the music. I know hmm. that's kind of random, hmm. but previous the previous uh, soundtrack designer was uh, Stuart Copeland from the Police, and and he did a fantastic job with the Gathering. But they he was one of those that they said, okay, well, you're going to have to go, and we're going to put somebody new in, and they put in Christopher Frank. And I didn't realize a lot of things about Christopher Frank. Christopher Frank started out as um, one of the members of Tangerine Dream, and he stayed in Tangerine Dream for about 20 years, hmm. bringing all kinds of new light to electronic music. And I guess Straczynski said, oh, that's what I need. That's what I need for Babylon 5. And many people would say that the music is very important to Babylon 5 just because of the way that Christopher Frank wrote it. Um, but I got caught in this kind of wormhole of searching prior to this episode which is there's a scene in the show that we'll probably talk about pretty at length at some point, but the scene is where Talia Winters and Susan Ivanova are sitting in the Zocalo at the bar, and she's talking about uh, the role of Psychor in her life. But in the background, before the, the dramatic music of Christopher Frank comes in, there's a song that is, it sounds very 80s. It sounds very, like, it just fits in normal pop radio. It's maybe just something that's almost throwaway pop. Um, but I got caught in this idea that I needed to find this song. It's nowhere to be found on the internet. Nobody knows what this is, but a lot of people kind of 
surmise that it's by Christopher Frank. Um, but that was the wormhole I got caught in before we, <laughs> before we got to the airing of the episode. I spent about three hours looking for this song. <laughs> For no reason whatsoever. It doesn't hit me as something I need to have in my life or anything. It just, no reason whatsoever. Okay, well, I'm going to start paying attention to the music more then because it's not something that jumped out at me. Of course, it is just one episode. Right. In, um, and I didn't notice any difference from the... <laughs> the previous the, the previous yeah. song that was used uh, um, in The Gathering or the previous music that was used in The Gathering. Yeah, I saw yeah. that episode three weeks ago, so there's no, like, I don't, I don't remember it that that uh, fondly. But um, what you said about Stuart Copeland is interesting because I went to a, a Comic-Con presentation recently, and it was for a video game called Spyro the Dragon. And basically, yeah. he had done this, he did the soundtrack for the original game. And he talked about how, he was there at the presentation, actually, oh, <laughs> at wow. Comic-Con. And he talked about how he'd made over 100 pieces of music, and uh, many of them <laughs> he still goes to by accident. Like, he, he'll make a new song, and he's like, oh, that sounds way too much like this thing I did for Spyro, you know, 20 years ago. It was, it was really interesting how that stuff happens. Like, I have an idea for how maybe Christopher Frank made that song that's in the background and nobody put it on a soundtrack. Nobody, like, they, maybe they just played it that one day, you know, maybe they threw away yeah. the tapes. I mean, I, it, all that is very possible. May not have a name, you know? <laughs> no, I, I don't think it does. I think it's something that, you know, it's almost cutting room floor. Although I was told that on occasion, um, Straczynski wrote lyrics for Christopher Frank music. And I'm wondering if that might be one of these situations. But... There's nothing. There's yeah. nothing out there. Hmm. Also, while we're talking, while we're talking about Christopher Frank, he designed the voice for Kosh. But who's Just Kosh? A, Kosh is the uh, the Vorlon ambassador. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So he designed gotcha. that that voice. So I, I'm just intrigued by it. I, I get caught by music, and uh, I'll I'll probably do that once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what what was your initial takeaway for for Midnight on the Firing Line? Uh, well, again, as a first episode of of a season, I'm I'm trying to keep track of you know names like Kosh. I forgot I forgot uh, who Kosh was. Um, I yeah, Ivanova is the new first officer, and I know we have a new Psychor officer too, Talia Winters. So I'm like trying to keep track of the people. Um, I was I was really intrigued by the by the world building, right? So, yeah. um, like that conversation you mentioned between Ivanova and and Talia, like that really like th- that would to me was one of the biggest insights into how things are on Earth in the future. Yeah, you know? like we have psychics and they're either all recruited into the psychor or they're drugged because they're considered dangerous and. You know, when Ivanova talks about her mom, like you know, that she had to be put on a controlled substance to be just to be uh, allowed to be free. Like, that was really sad, you know. You think about how many people live like that. Like she was in hiding for a long time, and, sure. and how it kind of consumed her, you know. And I don't know, it makes me think a lot about psychotropic medication and you know, um, over medicating people and and why we're medicating them and things like that. So it was a very sad story. And it adds a very serious element to Ivanova and Talia's potential, you know, relationship on on the show. Um, 
another thing that uh, really jumped out to me was um, more talk about how the Centur- uh, the Centauri and the Narn, you know, the hundred years and how things have gone back and forth. Yeah, uh, that's super interesting. I really like that they addressed how humans and Centauri are not like biologically related. No, I, but they, but they played it off, right? Yeah, yeah. Like the Centauri tried to say, like, "Oh, you're definitely we're definitely related, right?" Probably like trying yeah. to scheme their way into something, and the humans were like, "Oh, no, 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 we're not, <laughs> we're not." Um, and I think Garibaldi even says, like, uh, you know, appearances aside, like we have nothing in common. <laughs> we, there's nothing in common, exactly. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I like Centauri that strike me as being like used car salesmen of the galaxy, basically. Absolutely, one hundred percent. That is like in the dictionary for Centauri I'm sure (laughs) (laughs) and it's funny because like the Narn look so like the makeup and everything like it's so cool right like uh, Mm -hmm. um, Kasha what is the race uh, that that Kasha is the Vorlon the Vorlon right like the Vorlon obviously look like look alien the Narn look very cool the Mambari um, look very different but the Centauri are just like you know like they have funny hats, basically. <laughs> yeah, humans. they almost look like they're there for comp- comic relief, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like the just clown. the clowns of the galaxy, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet, despite that, um, Londo was very serious in this episode. And everything that happened to him, you know, had a lot of gravity to it. You know, from from um, the way he feels about how his government is handling things, the way he cares about his nephew, the assassination attempt, like all of these things, like I'm, like, all of this happened in one episode where like you you get that used car salesman feel, but at the same time you see this representation, like these ambassadors are really representations of entire races for right. for the purposes of of the show at least so far, and, and like. He's got he's got some depth to him, a lot of it, and and uh, I felt for him a lot, and ooh, like and I feel I feel weird about uh, Jakar now. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not as but you're I, not as trusting of him now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's almost like he's a villain, but at the same time, like nobody, like all the stuff that happened with the politics, right? Like uh, Sinclair wants to get involved, and the politicians, like or the senators, like. No, no, no. There's an election no, no, tomorrow. No. We got to stay can... focused on the yeah. election. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What's like? We can't take a position. Be right the day before an election. You crazy? That'll 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 skew the election. You know, in an unfavorable way. We we can't do that. And I think we even see in the episode that the incumbent won uh, the election at the end. I think. Yes. So, so it's you know it's a lot of yes, politics. Luis there. Santiago won the yeah. election by seventy percent. Yeah. Yeah. So. Lots of lots of politics involved, and like again, those things all really shape this world for me, and I'm and I'm I like it. Like I I really like those insights that we're getting. And, and make note that uh, Santiago, um, you know, just in terms of looking at our media to reflect our current reality, even though this was made back in 1994, 95, whatever, um, Santiago seems to support a position of Earth first. Of uh, you know, kind of saying you know we're we're going to take care of our own. We're going to tone down the influence of outside forces, and and I'm just going to kind of carry the party line, which is almost like a populist line that he's carrying yeah. for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So I, I you know I when I watched it the first time, I wasn't reflecting on these things because I wasn't in the world that I'm in now, and so now I can see it from a almost different perspective. Absolutely. 
But the things that you brought up bring to mind for me the, the most important theme I see in the entire episode. And I'm not sure you can easily, you know, string together a chain of events and turn it into one theme. But the theme I see most commonly is coercion. And it, it's throughout the episode. I mean, it, you talked about Talia and Ivanova's talk. And, and basically, Ivanova's mother was being coerced into being... Um, someone minimized basically your your power is too dangerous we can't have you so you know you you've decided to take this option so here's the drugs and we're going to tamp down your psychic abilities uh and then we go to karn malari who is at the agricultural station ragesh 3 and he's also being coerced although um it's you know it's it's one of those things where i, I think the actor did a very good job of making it look like he was being coerced and yet still trying to be straight-faced and and showing that He's, you know, he's, he's under some kind of duress, but of course you can't prove the duress. And so he's being coerced in that way. Um, when it comes to, uh, the council, the council is hoping to coerce everyone into making this different, you know, everybody's using their power in different ways throughout the show and trying to figure out how are we going to, to, to manage this situation that's come up. So it just stood out to me that coercion was so important. Coercion by exclusion was what was done by both Londo, who says, you know what, we're going to go to the council and we're not going to tell them what the home world said. Um, and then same with Sinclair. I want you to go to the council. I'm going to go in and hang out in space for a little while. And you didn't hear from me at all. So you're going to continue on and, and put sanctions against the Narn. So coercion just throughout it just it hit me this time when I was watching it like oh this is really about using power against one against other people you know Delen really didn't do much in this episode but Kosh had that line and it was like just let them let them kill each other <laughs> they are a dying species <laughs> yeah yeah Sinclair's like which one he's like yep yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Delenn's only moment was to really say, to point out, to say, you know, that we recognize the car, the prior claim, but that was a hundred years ago. To keep spilling blood for this old conflict is just doesn't make any sense. Um, and that, I thought, that statement made sense to me because it speaks to a lot going on in our world also. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, again, and everything is framed in that 100 years. You know, it's like 100 years is a long time. It's a really long time um, to act like, you know, like it just happened. I mean, and that's controversial. I mean, that's that's really difficult. You know, some people feel that way. Some people don't. Um, I think Delenn's uh, major contribution to the episode was her uh, befuddlement with Buck Rogers. And uh, uh, with, with the Duck Dodgers <laughs> and eating popcorn? Duck Rogers. Duck Rogers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I thought there might be some hidden meaning behind the fact that they chose Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. Of course, they are in the 24th and a half century in the show. But I, according to Straczynski, it's just he loves Warner Brothers cartoons. He yeah. wanted to make sure it was in there. <laughs> well, I didn't get the fact the I, I, I didn't realize that it's the same time period until you just mentioned it. That's right. I didn't realize it until I just mentioned it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I'm like, good. oh, wait, it was 2450 something. <laughs> I want to see. I want to watch Duck Dodgers now. Duck Dodgers, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting that 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 particular you know is a little bit outside of Babylon Five for a moment, but 
the Duck Dodgers has this kind of place in geekdom as this really important touchstone, at least in Atlanta. We used to go to a convention called the Fantasy Fair. And in Fantasy Fair, during the Night of the Masquerade, they would always show Duck Dodgers. Well, when Dragon Con took over Fantasy Fair, Dragon Con kept that tradition. So now every year at Dragon Con, we watch Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. I was I did not know this. <laughs> That's great. So I don't know if it's a touchstone at other conventions because I'm you know I'm kind of East Coast bound for the most part. But I've been to Dragon Con twice and didn't know that. So, so yeah, so we got the coercion by exclusion going on and deceit for the good. Kind of we we we've already said you know Sinclair is a kind of a rebel a rebel. He's he's uh, the kind of person who's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to create the good no matter what it takes. He's he's chaotic good basically. He's willing to look like he follows directions, but he doesn't follow directions very well when it comes to his values. Mm-hmm. So he sticks to his values, and, and it puts him in this situation where he's like, uh, you, you didn't hear any of this, Ivanova. You just uh, you go ahead and go to the council and, and make the vote for us. As far as you know, we're going to pass sanctions against the Narn. Which, I mean, again, politics, right? The 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 idea that these are either elected officials or they have a, a a particular responsibility but ultimately once they're in the room like they're just they just do whatever they want and that's that's a sad truth yeah i i don't see him as a politician though sinclair um uh, but I, I, so i mean but when like he's he's the he's an ambassador too right he's the ambassador of earth he is yeah yeah so when they don't call him the, ambassador they call him commander but i assume he's the ambassador of earth yeah. Yeah. And once they have those council meetings, like th- there are important decisions being made there. And although he's not supposed to, again, he's supposed to do what his government wants, just like Londo is supposed to do what his government wants. Once they're in there, they're kind of just, you know, <laughs> things can happen because maybe I misunderstood or I didn't hear something that was said in a prior meeting. Yeah, so it really does come down to that the, each of the ambassadors are the face of the species. You know, you mentioned that, but it, it's really important to recognize that they're not even the ones who are in control. They're the ones who are supposed to kind of spin things in a way that's going to make it make sense and mm-hmm. and uh, bring the peace, so to speak, by by being on the station there, trying to represent each of their peoples while still being, you know, aware of their own frailties, their own challenges. Yeah. But then that, that brings to fact that, okay, there's this huge race war going on between the Mimbari, and not the Mimbari, I keep doing that, the Narn and the Centauri. It's been going on for years, and, and they both have these dreams of, you know, like, I think Londo said, we should have wiped you out in the first place. And then, of course, uh, Jakar says, um, uh, I'd, I'd like to live long enough to see us uh, give their bones to as flutes to children. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about as dark as you can get, but uh, there, there's clearly a lot of racial tension going on between their two, their two species. And th- there's this cordial thing between them, you know, even at the start, you know, when Jakar gets up from the table and he's, he's in, inviting uh, Londo to enjoy this spoo with him. Um, so there's some kind of cordiality or some kind of attempt to be friendly on the surface, but there's all this lingering hatred underneath. It's it's just crazy. Yeah, at least be diplomatic. I don't know if friendly. But I think I think it's a perfect way to frame the universe 
in a TV setting because you can't travel the universe. So we have this space station and we have each of these representatives and you, again, I'm assuming this will continue to happen. We'll see all of these huge things play out in a very personal and emotional way because it'll mostly happen between these people, right? Just individuals dealing with individuals representing millions or billions, trillions maybe, right? I don't know how, how large some of these civilizations are, but that's, that's an awesome way to make a show. And yeah, that might be one of the best keystones of the show is making everything personal by putting it into one person and, and building those characters around their culture. I have to think about that because that that's uh, we're basically saying that uh, you're you're seeing all of the battle of the culture within the one person, which in 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 one way is horrible because one, no one person can represent everyone. Sure, right? That is that is not a good way to do it. In life, but as a TV show, <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's a window into all of the events that are happening in the world through these, like you said, maybe like Narn and Londo may hate each other or their people may hate each other, but they're like, they, they have a role to play there. And again, as far as the show goes, I think they're representing um, everything. And and speaking of Londo and, 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 uh, Jakar. I, I, Jakar, yeah, I keep missing up, mixing up the names, man. Uh, when Lando uh, talks about this death vision that he has, mm-hmm. that like that jumped out at me. That seems uh, very interesting. I'm gonna um, twenty years the, in the future. Yeah, because the way he says it, I think he explains it to someone as in that's just something that all the Centauri experience, like they see the moment of yeah, their they death. see the moment of their death. Yeah, and Londo just happens to see the moment of his death is also the moment of Jakar's death. Right there, they're choking each other out, and that is that's that's one hell of a death vision. And then to be there, having to, like you said, like be diplomatic and have these. I mean, I I hope that they like. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that's going to happen because if they're always going to be the two ambassadors for the next 20 years, that's a, that's a hell of a, a difficult 20 years. Um, knowing that that is right, right. That knowing that, that that's what, the, that's yeah. what's coming in the future. Yeah, because hopefully, like. Your hope would be that Jakar gets transferred or something, or you get transferred, so you don't have to deal with them every day. Fine, I understand we're going to kill each other one day, but I'd hate to have to work with you every day too. <laughs> yeah, and how hard would that be? That that's yeah. That's really. Hard. I know that eventually you or I are going to kill each other, or both of us are going to kill each other. And Lando tries. I mean, like let's just have like, some spoo together. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's at the beginning of the episode. By the end of the episode, Lando is going to go assassinate Jakar. Oh yeah. You know, he's yeah. like, I mean, you just asked, like, how difficult would that be? It's probably unbearable enough to want to just kill the guy now <laughs> and get it over with. And, and you know, that's also really interesting that even though he said that the Centauri all have these visions, he didn't necessarily, I mean, he implied that, that, that they see the truth, that that's actually how it's going to play out. I don't know how literal those visions are, but despite that, he went and tried to shoot Jakar. He still anyway. wanted to take matters into his own hands and go and yeah. kill Jakar. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And I love the putting of the t- putting together of the gun in the in yeah. his quarters. <laughs> it's just this slow, methodical, backward strip tease of the gun coming together. Just a 
Of course, One Piece makes it very clear what he's doing. But at that first, you're like, what? What? What is he doing? He literally took the hand off a tea kettle. This is pretty funny. Uh huh. <laughs> the handle off a tea kettle, and then some little trinket that he had hanging on the wall, and <laughs> yep. And then the base of a lamp, where the ninety yeah. percent of the gun is for <laughs> the lamp. Exactly. <laughs> Somehow he got by with it all. But of course, it, it sounded like Garibaldi knew. That he had, you know, he knew he had the gun in the first place and he even allowed him to have the gun afterwards as long as you, you know, as long as I don't find it within an hour kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if Talia hadn't stepped in, right, he wouldn't have known. But but you're right. He was like, just let's pretend like this didn't happen. I mean, which makes me think that maybe other people don't like Jakar either. Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. You want to mm-hmm. kill Jakar. We all want to kill Jakar at least once a week, but you can't do it. No, not now. Yeah, what what did Gary Paldi say? He said something like, I know how it burns, I know how it feels. And there's no clear answer as to what what he's talking about, but he, he yeah. seems to have some affinity for Londo, even though his first response to Londo is, oh, here we go again. But he, he's always very friendly to Londo and almost um, respectful to him, <laughs> even, even in the midst of this, you know, would you have really killed me? Yes, but I'm just as glad I didn't have to, you know. <laughs> Lando calls Garibaldi Garibalding at the beginning. Garibalding? <laughs> I didn't catch yeah, that yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. Garibaldi's face is just like, oh, what do you want, Lando? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Peter Jurassic, who plays uh, Lando Malari, said that any time he wanted to get into character, all he had to do was stand up and say, Mr. Garibaldi. <laughs> that was his battle cry, basically. <laughs> Oh, that's good. It's good. There's some stuff that's kind of hidden going on here, which is, um, you know, how did Jakar know about the fact that the Centauri government was not going to take action in the council? Um. So, so I feel like that that wasn't too much of a concern for me because huge governments spies within you know each other's uh, governments yeah, like that would okay. it be that I'm, I'm not too concerned so your assumption then that. is that some spy on on the the uh uh some spy of londo's people basically some spy of the centauri is is le- leaking the information to jakar in some way uh my assumption is that every government has spies <laughs> everywhere they can and there's ov- always um an intelligence uh division right of, of the government trying to gather information and that just seemed like something pretty plus like it, it was transmitted to him over over communication channels we established in this episode that hacking is a thing that uh, that information can be um intercepted and you know just like just like now so so that that didn't like really jump out at me that seems like something okay. that'll yeah i don't think i think that that's gonna keep happening all the time that'll be like those those things will happen to, to again i'm just assuming i've only seen the, <laughs> this this far but um but having an, a, an idea of how governments work that's just it'll move the plot along every now and then to just have yeah. my intelligence officers have told me or picked up mm-hmm. there's chatter about this or this classic <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy way to uh to get past the idea that uh yep. you have to explain the the spy i guess yep 
there was what was the other thing that was standing out? So there's a couple of just secret moments that were standing out. Um, the other was, of course, what Garibaldi said about the fact that he knows all this. He he understands all this when he's dealing with with uh, Londo. Yeah. Um, now, now there is the show is I'm gonna say smart, right? In that there wasn't there was exposition later, but along the way it was a little um, complicated to follow. Not like impossible, but I think it was it was again like smartly written. It wasn't uh, all too obvious because there's yeah. there's the comments by Jakar earlier about how you know we have the most advanced weapons or we sold weapons and then Sinclair's like you'd sell them to anybody and then we have the situation with the raiders on the different ships and they're using more advanced weapons than they had ever been using before and that was kind of just mentioned at the beginning so then you put those two things together and or at least Sinclair put them together and we didn't we don't notice until the end that those things come together but if you watch the episode again which I did <laughs> then you see like, oh, okay, he said this at the beginning, then this happened, and that connected to this. That was really smart. And it wasn't obviously laid out, right? It wasn't, there wasn't just, they weren't spewing exposition throughout the whole episode for, for you to understand what was happening. But all the pieces were actually there. So I really, I really like that. So there's some very subtle foreshadowing going on mm-hmm. at the beginning. And if you watch it again, you kind of catch that subtle foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which doesn't feel so subtle, so so subtle afterwards, because um, it's just like the pieces of the puzzle were all there, and Sinclair put them together. He didn't tell us until afterwards, because I thought it was weird. He's like, uh, "Ivanova, go, uh, you know, go for me. I have an idea. Tell Garibaldi I'm taking his place." It's like, yeah. why? What? That doesn't even make sense. Why'd you do that? And it's later on that he's like, "Oh, it's all connected." Why, yeah, but he he doesn't realize it when he first makes that plan. Actually, yeah, he has like kind of an inkling, right? He's like he he uh, he thinks that it might it might be possible, so he wants to investigate it. Yeah, and also being off the ship doesn't doesn't hurt him because then he he can have you know kind of an immunity to the fact that he was supposed to say something um, different than what Earth was going to say. But ultimately, yep. Earth didn't have to step in at all because uh, yep because of what he did out there. And discovering that this is, you know, this is, an, this is another part of the Narn challenges that we're ch- dealing with. The fact that they're selling these weapons to these raiders. Yeah. And these raiders were going to destroy a ship of refugees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the, the other thing uh, that I kind of caught as I was reading through notes and trying to make some sense of things, that this was a refugee shuttle service, meaning that there is a business that is running that shuttles refugees. Why are there refugees, and where are those refugees coming from, and and what is this all about? Oh, that's a good question. They didn't say. They just said no. refugees. Yeah, they left you kind of in the lurch and not really knowing what's going on, and and just seeing these husks of ships that these raiders have come along and and basically destroyed everybody around, and, and you don't even really know why. There's not even really any explanation of what's going on, except that we've got, we've had problems with raiders before, and we're having problems with raiders now. Um, that that reminds me of a scene in the council where they're mentioning like, oh, we have you know the four major races or five, right? It's a, five, five, and then and like the consortium of other planets or something like I forgot the exactly League of what Non-Aligned Worlds. League of Non-Aligned Worlds, and yes. it's like the lesser planets, right, or something. It's it's like and then yeah, the ones with less political clout. 
still yeah. have a voice in the council. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think what I was reading as far as the political structure is, you know, anybody on the council proper can can make a vote, but and when it comes to the the League of Non-Aligned Worlds, I think that uh, they have to vote unanimously against something, or, or they have some part in it, but they just don't have a full role in the diplomatic process. Oh. Oh, see? I want to know more about that. Interestingly uh, enough, and I, interesting. I noticed this only, you know, maybe the second time I did it, was Vircado, uh, Londo's attache, is sitting at the back of the the place. And the only thing I could think of was, well, he just doesn't fit up there on the council table, basically, but he needs to be in the room because he's he's there as an aide to, to Londo. But mm-hmm. it was just interesting. He's Stephen First is still in the room. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of uh, Stephen First as Viracato? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Nothing yet. Just he's he's kind of a, a, a you know he's if if the if if we say that the Centauri are these kind of clowns of the universe, he kind of matches with that ultimate picture because he's just kind of like fumbling. Uh, you know, he, he's almost a flounder. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, <laughs> my diplomatic attaché, Londo was expecting many more people to show up than, than just the one. Yeah, no, Londo was very disappointed in the Centauri government throughout this whole episode. Yes. I, I have a feeling that's going to... Uh, we're going to see much more of that. Yes, uh, you know. Without foreshadowing too much... I, Here's the space that Londo's in. My government was once a big power in the universe. Now we are, you know, kind of shot down to be these lower beings or these, you know, yeah. used car salesmen of the universe for, I mean, he hadn't said those words, but he said similar words to kind of indicate who the Centauri are, the great Centauri Republic. Yeah. Um, but the fact is that he clearly has some passion about him that's, that makes him want something different than what he's got. He doesn't see himself in a position of power whatsoever, even as an ambassador to to Babylon five. He doesn't, he doesn't see it as a respected position really. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Lando. (laughs) The other thing that I was caught by, um, was that, and and I I've seen this in recent political ads and recent political things. War is not politically convenient, or it it's chosen when it's only politically convenient. You know, it's almost like yeah. the issues that we try to vote on, the things that we try to make sense of. It really comes down to this popularity process that that these these politicians are trying to win, and everything becomes kind of symbol to or or everything comes kind of a stepping stone to political power instead of being it's a stepping stone to trying to make change in the world i'm just hit by that on a daily basis when i'm listening to the news you know you know the the way that the news media talks about elections coming up you know well this isn't a good thing to talk about during this election season for this particular politician what (laughs) why can't we just talk about the issues and stop focusing on this popularity contest yeah yeah but it was well, happening in the show because, you know, the Earth government did not want to take a stand. Now, so, when you when you mention war, though, 
there we aren't in the middle of a war. This was just the the Ragesh three thing was just one conflict. Right? right, but Londo says there will be war if if Karn Malari is hurt. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's very adamant about his approach, and of course, Earth is very adamant. Like we're not going to get involved in any kind of conflict between these two races. We don't want to be part of this. Yeah, the Centauri doesn't want the war either. Apparently, no. But, Ragestri is is too remote and too non consequential to break the peace. Yeah. Ah, uh, so what happens with colonies? Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think overall? Looking at the story, you don't really know the story arc yet. You don't know where it's going. What do you think was the point of the episode? Uh, so I I still think that we're in that you know meeting the people and meeting the world phase world building so, yeah yeah so so there were a lot of elements here particularly um like there was no there's barely any mention of the earth and membari war it brought it was brought up once really fast but we we learned a lot about it in the gathering um, right now we went into more detail on the on the narn and centauri conflict the the Vorlon, we still like know nothing about, right? But right. there's there's enough uh, stuff going on here. I don't know. There was a moment in this episode where I thought, this this doesn't feel like the first episode of something. This feels like it is like we were thrown into the end of a season almost, right? Because mm. everything was so heated and escalated. Where I was like, man, like we're on the verge of like people. These people could start dying at any minute. Like the stakes are that high. It feels. And and for that to be the first episode, for us to, for this to be where we're starting the season off, and the show practically has me really excited because I, I don't know where it's gonna go. I'm only learning where it's been, and and that where it's been has been tragic, and uh, you know affected all these people. Like, n- nobody's okay after what happened. Nobody's talking about the glory, you know, like, oh, we're in the golden age now. Remember back when we we had war? It's like, no, everybody's still pretty angry. And Sinclair has no idea why, you know, they won a war a couple of years back. And, like, there's still there's still a lot of mystery there. So I, I have no idea where this is going, but I like the world that they're building. And it's it's definitely, there's a lot of drama, let's say. And and uh, it it feels... One more thing. It feels like, like there's a like there is an arc. Mm-hmm. It does. It it doesn't feel like you know case of the week kind of thing, right? Because right. Some even, some TV shows can be very episodic, where it's like uh, we exactly. introduce the conflict and we resolve the conflict by the end of the episode. Exactly. This does not feel that way at all. Even even the one thing that felt like oh this is the throwaway, which was the um, the raiders. Like no, that was that was a part of the larger narrative and nothing was really resolved at all. So, no. so I don't know. So honestly, <laughs> one thing um, it's, it's really hard to see that there's five seasons of this available and I'm only taking it one at a time. Like I really want to keep watching. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's uh, uh we should record more often. <laughs> Probably so. Well, um, we, we we can talk about that. <laughs> uh, and one more thing about kind of like the, the world building. Um, I wrote in my notes, starfighters with an exclamation point. Um, because 
you know, obviously I'm going into the show thinking this was at the same time as on, on TV at the same time as Deep Space Nine. Yes. And I'm comparing it to, uh, to Star Trek and Star Trek doesn't have starfighters, you know, Star, uh, Star Trek doesn't have, um, cool battles, um, even even like late, uh, I'm, I still haven't finished Deep Space Nine to be to okay, be fair, okay. um, but like it doesn't, you know, there aren't exciting um, um, battles. It's it's really just like it is like the Navy, right? It's like one big ship firing on another big ship, um, for the most part. So it was cool to see the commander like, get in a starfighter and either the way they launched and everything and the way he, like maneuvered and everything. That was that was kind of cool. That was kind of cool. Yeah, to see, they dropped it sets a, from a slightly the spinning different ship. Tone. They drop from the spinning ship, so they use. Straczynski tried very hard to use a lot of of science in in doing what he did. So he made it very clear that what they were doing were actual scientifically valid maneuvers. Hmm. Um, even you know, even the launching from the from Babylon Five, which is just you know the the station spinning, so you just let the let the thing gets flung off, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 I like that. I, I think yeah. I might have mentioned this last episode, and and it didn't pan out, but NASA. Uh, contacted Straczynski um, about the possibility of using the design of the Star Fury. They didn't end up doing it. They didn't end up yeah. doing anything with it, but they did contact him, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. But the Raider ships are, are much less maneuverable. They're meant to, to... They're cargo ships, really. Yeah, they're cargo ships, and they're also meant to... You can look at them, and they're, they're kind of aerodynamic, so they're meant to be able to survive in um, an atmosphere. So the Star Furies are much more maneuverable. They're made for spaceflight and not made for atmospheric. So they, they're much more they're much more maneuverable in that battle than than the other guys. Do you I forgot what it's called, but I know that for Star Trek there's like these technical manuals that mm-hmm. talk about the technology. You know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, like a about? blueprint of the of the ship and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and they show all the, the the ship and the vehicles and the weapons and all the technology, um, like the schematics and stuff. I think I think they're called technical manuals, something like that. Yeah. And uh, do you know if there's one for Babylon? There may be, but okay. So you know, we're coming to this in 2018, and it was a show made in '94. So what I'm finding is all the references to people who paid attention to Babylon Five when it was in vogue, and and to the books that were available. They're either gone or they're really ancient. Like if you look at any of these Babylon 5 websites, they're still done. They're still there, but they exist as they did in 1995. So it's like going back in time to yeah, look at I just these found, websites. Yeah, I just I just looked up uh, Technomanual and I found b5tech.org. The oldest and most detailed site concerning the technology ships and weapons of Babylon 5. And yes, this is a very old-looking website. <laughs> it's amazing because, of course, the show looks old. And but if you're just basically going back in time, anytime you go to it at this point, um, it's fascinating to me. But the the books, the books that I read during the time that that Babylon Five was going on, are like in the ninety dollar range because they're not in print anymore, yeah, and nobody's print. printing them. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. crazy. Um, cause I thought, you know, maybe the paperbacks that were, you know, not such a big deal at the time, you know, they're maybe three ninety five, four ninety five. They're going for really high prices now cause nobody kept it going. 
Yeah, apparently it had to do with the, like, it, it just wasn't syndicated. Like, there was something with the rights, so it wasn't available to watch. I mean, we, we mentioned this on the first um, on the first episode. There was, there's no easy way to watch it until it, it ended up on Amazon. Also, I'm kind of yeah. concerned that it's just going to leave Amazon at any moment, too, again. So I want to make sure. <laughs> I hope that doesn't I'm, happen. I'm praying that it's going to stick around for us, but... Um, yeah. Now we'll have to buy uh, the... Are they on Blu-ray? They're not on Blu-ray. Right? In fact, they weren't made... No. Um, they did not allow the prints... I forget the size film they were used, they used, but um, it was... The stuff that we got on TV was not the film that they made, and they had to do a lot of editing and, and breaking down. And then as a result of, of, I think as a result of an earthquake, as a result of some other things, we don't have all of the masters even out there anymore. And so there could be some possibility of turning it to Blu-ray. Like, you know, Star Trek, they've done a lot of work to make Blu-rays of, of episodes. But with um, with Babylon 5, nobody's put the capital up to make it happen. I think Straczynski yeah. would be totally into it. He'd be happy to do it. Yeah. It is odd to see, to watch these episodes in widescreen. Um, yeah, because you're stretching it. Knowing, no, no, they're not stretched. They would okay. be cropped. They would be cropped is what they would have done. Oh, I um, see. Okay. Yeah, unless, th- they do that with a lot of shows. But usually when that happens, I can I can kind of tell, oh, they're cutting things off. And it, this show doesn't look that way. There's never been a moment where I'm like, man, I really wish this was the full screen format because they seem to be cutting off the top and the bottom. So I don't know if they filmed it in uh, in widescreen or if the masters were filmed in widescreen. But what you got on the TV was not the widescreen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because at that time, people weren't using widescreen TVs so much. Yeah, there were no, there were they weren't available in the '90s. So. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I mean, no TV was filmed in in widescreen, so I'm I, I need to I need to learn more about that. But it looks good. It looks good. Yeah, given what it is, uh, you know, it's all about the story. You know, the technology doesn't quite make it for me sometimes, and especially watching it on Amazon, they don't they didn't get the best copies of these shows, but it's still fantastic. The CG Holds looks horrible. The CG yes. looks horrible because of the of the resolution. And that's like yes. that's unavoidable, unavoidable. But the actual video to me looks really good. So, yep. Yeah. So, midnight on the firing line. A, a good start for the series and uh, getting us ready for the next episode, which is Soul Hunter. Yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do this faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking as we were doing this, I was like, you know what? Hostway's going to get to a point where he is not going to be able to wait for this every episode to be new and, and not know the future of the episodes. So we, we really hard. have to move faster <laughs> for, for Hostway's sake. <laughs> All right. Well, final thoughts. Uh, can, uh, the uh, Midnight on the Firing Line is, is a, a great beginning to our story we get a lot of world building and it's seamlessly edited into the system so it's almost like you're being dropped into the middle of a universe and you're just picking up clues as you go along you know some some clues we didn't talk about is uh the number that you know i forget the the different things that happened the attack on pearl harbor of course he mentioned Mm -hmm. and then he mentioned uh some kind of other attack on earth and then the attack on diego san diego that's right san diego the nuclear attack in san diego Yeah, nuclear bombing of San Diego. And then a long and bloody history. Yeah. 
So there, there's history there that's presented for Earth too, but it's momentary. And even though, and, and we even have to kind of speculate about the history of of um, the psychor, you know, the, the idea that they started regulating people with psychic abilities. Yeah. Three choices: go to jail, join the core, take the drug. It's not a lot of choice. No. All right. Your final thoughts? My final thoughts. I think I think I've covered everything. Uh, I I wanted to cover, and yeah, my final thought is I want to watch the next episode right now. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go watch Soul Hunter. All right. Well, this has been Conspiracy of Light, and we look forward to you joining us again next time around for Soul Hunter episode two of Babylon Five season one. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Josue, for joining me. Um, It's been a fantastic discussion. And as crazy as this sounds, even though I've watched this multiple times, the fact that we're talking about it just makes me want to see more. So I'm with you. let's, Let's carry forward. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.